0: One, two, one, two, three.
1: Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. For most Columbia students and alumni, when you hear the words jazz at Columbia, it's almost impossible not to think of Christopher Washburn, Washburn is an associate professor of music, and the director of the Louis Armstrong Jazz Performance Program at Columbia. In addition to being a jazz scholar, he's a jazz musician in his own right. He has performed with the Duke Ellington Orchestra, Tito Puente, Justin Timberlake, Mark Antony, Celine Dion, and the list goes on. His most common instrument of choice is the trombone, though he also plays the tuba, the didgeridoo, and percussion. Today we're going to play you a mashup of two talks that Washburn gave at Columbia. One he gave as part of the School of Professional Studies Talks at Columbia series. The other was delivered to Columbia staff members. In both talks, Washburn explores the creative process of jazz and looks specifically at the role that collaboration and improvisation plays. And in this exploration, he delves into how this process can inform your everyday decisions in the workplace, from leadership and adaptability, to innovation and risk management. So, who knew jazz was so useful? Well, Washburn did.
0: I'd like to begin by first talking about what jazz means to me. And for that, I'd like to turn to our founding fathers to take inspiration on how they defined this music. I'll first turn to Sidney Bechet, one of the most important New Orleans musicians, played with Louis Armstrong, was one of the people that defined what we think about as jazz today, as a true improviser's art form. When he was asked over and over again throughout his life what jazz is and what it means, he had this answer. He said, it's the sound of freedom. It's the freedom that the emancipated slaves found in their lives in this country. And they had to make sense of that newfound freedom. They had to transform their lives and transform ugliness into beauty and use materials at hand to create something new and their own. Another definition that I like to hear is from Wayne Shorter, one of the greatest jazz saxophone players alive today. And even just two years ago, he was asked what jazz means. And his answer was, I dare you. Now, what's interesting about both of these definitions is neither one of these musicians is treating jazz as a noun, as an object, but rather as a verb, as a philosophy of life, and as a way of navigating through all sorts of adverse conditions. What does this mean for jazz? Well, early on, what we see is that improvisation becomes a key element to what we do. As a matter of fact, today we're going to improvise for you, and I chose two musicians that I have played with on occasion, but we've never played together as a group until right now. That means that before your very eyes, we're going to create something truly new, and we have no idea what it's going to be. Now, why is this improvisation so important? Well, basically, what Sidney Bechet was referring to was the fact that improvisation is one of the fundamental life forces that we have and the reason why human beings have survived for so many years. I mean, everybody improvises. If you didn't improvise, you would be dead. I'll prove it. Today, as you were walking here, you started to cross the street. You stepped into the street, you looked one way, it was clear. You looked the other way and a bus was coming. What did you do? You stepped back. You improvised. You're alive. You improvise every day. You walk down the street and you see a friend that you haven't seen for a while and you say hi. And then they say hi back. And then you ask the most dangerous question in the entire universe. How you doing? Because at that moment, you're engaged in improvisation. It's the conversations that you have. What jazz musicians do is they take these fundamental processes that we experience in our daily lives and they transform that into an artistic expression. What they do is they create in a way spontaneously before your very eyes in a virtuosic way. But this is not something special. As a matter of fact, since you all are improvisers, there's one thing you should know. If I were to ask you who are the most virtuosic improvisers in the entire world and tell you that it's not jazz musicians, the answer is two-year-olds. You put a two-year-old in a room with nothing else but a cardboard box and within a matter of moments that box is transformed into a rocket ship, into a car, into a house, into a boat, and many, many other things. Since all of you were two at one point, You're all virtuosic improvisers. But then something happened. You entered our school system. And then you spent the next 18 years of your lives being squelched and being conformed and told that improvisation is not always allowed. It's rarely allowed. And you must conform and do what we say. What jazz musicians do is we get in touch with our inner two-year-old selves. Think about, when we go to work, we actually say we're going to go play a gig. We don't work a gig. Why? Because the idea of play is so fundamentally important for new discovery. The founding fathers and mothers of this musical style that eventually became known as jazz took inspiration from those virtuosic displays of imagination, of risk-taking, of adaptability and improvisation and transformed it into an art form. And every time jazz musicians get together on stage and perform this music, we have a professional mandate to spontaneously create the music right before your very eyes. I would say that yes, we need to adapt and we need to transform our organizations and our lives to this new setting, but where do we look for inspiration? Well, we can look at what people have been doing for hundreds of years, adapting to globalization. Because in some ways, jazz is the first music that was truly global. It emerges out of a cultural milieu of culture clash, of cultures coming together and trying to figure out how to negotiate a new life. It's the beauty that can come from that clash and that cross-cultural dialogue and that adaptability. But in order for that to happen, jazz musicians have to figure out how to navigate and negotiate with one another on stage. At the same time though, in order to be able to spontaneously create, we have to be flexible and fluid. I remember the very first jazz class I ever had was with a great bass player, Richard Davis, and he said, you want to be a professional jazz musician? You need to be flexible. It took me years to figure out what that meant. And then I heard this story. Herbie Hancock, a young pianist, 21 year, 23 years old, in 1963, gets the call of his life from Miles Davis, the biggest jazz star of the day, and says, I want you to play in my band. He couldn't believe it. He goes out on tour with Miles Davis. It's going OK. And in the middle of a performance, when Miles Davis was taking a solo, at the moment when the jazz star, who's 20 years older, is shining. The young Hancock plays a chord on the piano that could not be justified in any musical universe, ever. It was so blatantly wrong. He immediately cringed and thought the gig was over. This was the last time he would have a chance to play with Miles Davis. And what Herbie said, Miles took a breath and changed the notes he was playing in such a way that made that chord sound beautiful. Why was it that in the middle of a performance, a jazz star took the moment to take care of a young, unknown pianist? How was this possible? Why was Herbie Hancock not fired? Well, if you think about our professional mandate, every time we go to work, we have to come up with something new. We have to innovate daily. What would that be like in your jobs? If every single day you had to come up with something new, otherwise you'd be fired. New ideas. How do you do it? So jazz has a very different relationship to failure than a lot of other professions. In the sense, we don't view it as something necessarily bad. Actually, we view it as an opportunity. Miles Davis was not doing any favor to Herbie Hancock by changing his notes and making him sound good. No, Herbie was doing him, Miles Davis, a favor by playing the wrong notes at the wrong time. It gave Miles an opportunity to capitalize and to create something unexpected and new. It was easy for him to innovate that day because of the mistake. Miles Davis was interviewed about that experience later on and he said, you know, when you, There's no wrong notes in jazz. It's what you play after the wrong notes that makes them right or wrong. It's what you do with the failure that matters, not the failure in and of itself. And so what jazz musicians do and band leaders need to do is they need to raise their tolerance for risk and realize that their team is going to fail and is going to fail often. What did Samuel Beckett say? Life is just a series of failures. We can just only hope to learn from those failures, and every time we fail, fail better. In jazz, we need to fail better every single time. We invite those mistakes, those misfires, those miscommunications, those clashes, and transform them into something new. We need to attend to everybody's story. We can also think about this. If this was a corporate boardroom, we just had our corporate meeting right in front of your eyes. Were we sitting at a rectangular table? We were sitting at a round table, just like you are. What does that mean? That our organizational structure is not pyramidic when we're on stage. It's a flattened organizational structure where everybody around that table is given an equal voice. As a leader, I need to facilitate a space for that equal voice. Everybody's voice matters. It makes sense if you think about the history of this music and where it comes from. It comes from a peoples that had been silenced for almost 500 years. When art forms start to emerge out of that cultural milieu, everybody's voice matters. Everybody is given a voice and every story needs to be attended to. When jazz musicians play, we sound that out too. That's why everybody got a chance to take a solo. And it's what those organizational theorists started to notice that we could innovate and create every single day because as a leader, I raise my talents for risk and everybody is given an equal voice. Everybody can be a leader at any one time and feel free to do so. We're gonna play a number for you. It's a song that was written by Thelonious Monk. It was a composition that he wrote to communicate that when he played, it was not about himself, it was about all of you. And he wanted to reach everyone in the room on a fundamental level. That's why he called this, I Mean You. Hope you enjoy. Well, thank you, you can applaud for that. And we've never rehearsed together. As a matter of fact, in my professional jazz band, the last time I rehearsed was 13 years ago and only half the band showed up. So how is it that we could do what we just did without a rehearsal, without ever playing together, right before your eyes? Well, there's some fundamental things that have to happen. And they're the kind of the the cues and the lessons that jazz has to offer. So the first thing is, is that we're improvising. It was the melody and the harmony. It was the first 20 seconds of what you heard. And then the dare came. Then the sound of freedom came in the sense that we got to take solos and improvise. So we have to develop our improvisational abilities. So how do you do that? Many people ask me, oh, you teach jazz at a college level. How do you teach improvisation? And the answer is, I don't. It's what human beings, why we thrive, and why we thrive on this planet, because we're adaptable. What did Charles Darwin say? It's not the strongest that survive. It's the most adaptable. That's what it means to listen till you sweat, where you are nowhere else but here. And it's the only way that you can really hear deeply and attend to the voices around you. And it's also what psychologists call entering a zone of flow. And that's why jazz is the key to eternal happiness because there are the moments when we are so deeply engaged and nowhere else in the present that we are the happiest in our lives. It happens in times when you're with somebody that you deeply love, or when you're having an intimate relation, or you're working on a work of art and you're being extremely creative or you're so deeply into the project that you're doing or a conversation with a great friend over coffee that you lose track of time. But we're even happier if we feel as though we've got some creative input. If we can realize our creative selves and what we do, then we are truly happy as team leaders. When you have a group around that table, whether it's small or across a large organization, you will not be successful if not everyone around that table feels as though their voice matters and they're creatively engaged and invested in that moment. Working collectively like that, it's so important. And it's very difficult in a large, unwieldy uh, organization. I know because I'm a faculty member here at Columbia. It's like we should be, in some ways, you guys are the choir. We should be having this same presentation for the administration here as well as the faculty members because everybody can learn from this. The value of art and why art matters. And also think about that. If you were going to school, a lot of you have kids. What if your kids were taught that failure actually is a good thing? It's important for success. As a matter of fact, everybody in this room, you're all failures. You couldn't have... gotten to where you are right now and your success without them and you learn from them. It's a normal part of life. When my kids come home and they get a bad grade, they're like terrified and feel like dejected and defeated and shameful. I'm like, you're crazy. James Dyson, the, mo- the inventor of the modern vacuum cleaner that transformed all of our lives in household cleaning, developed 5,127 prototypes that failed before he invented what we know today as the vacuum cleaner. Do we study those failures and those prototypes? No. We celebrate his successes. In jazz, we celebrate the failures and the processes of working out those failures to achieve something better. It's a life of exploration, of venture, of finding new possibilities and it can be transformative in your lives. To be listening deeply, to be fully present, to be in touch with your inner two-year-old. What it would be like if you go to work and it's a bunch of play for you. Try to create something new every single day of your life. And always walk home a way that you've never walked home before.
1: This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Excerpts for this episode come from the Toxic Columbia series, which is produced by the School of Professional Studies. To watch Washburn's full presentation on Why Jazz Matters and to hear more great talks from Columbia's diverse faculty, visit talks.sps.columbia.edu. In addition to hearing Washburn on the trombone, you also heard Ole Matheson on saxophone, Bruce Barth on the piano, Ugana Okeguo on the bass, and Vince Cherico on the drums. All the musicians are on faculty for the Columbia Music Performance Program. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu. Thank you.